traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast is brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock market hats claim to be stylish and funny. Frankly, I wasn't that amused by some of them, but maybe you will be. And it's not just hats either, but they have t-shirts, sports bras, socks, and even pet ID tags. It's worth checking out, and right now you can take advantage of a 10% discount on all merchandise. Go to stockmarkethats.com and enter the code CONTRARIAN before you check out and take advantage of this special offer. There is a referral link I will put in the show notes as well. Stock Market Hats, claiming to be stylish and funny. Here with Deerpoint Macro, who is joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast to discuss his view that the Fed, the Federal Reserve, will back off of raising interest rates this cycle. Of course, the question is exactly when the Fed will back off and how high the Fed will go with interest rate hikes, which are the Fed funds rate is currently, what, 1.5 to 1.75%. And to your point, Macro here has a a bunch of very contrarian views on this. Obviously, the premise that the Fed is going to stop this tightening cycle at any point soon is itself contrarian at this point in time as we record this on Wednesday, June 22nd, right as Jay Powell is testifying in front of Congress. But enough from me, Deerpoint Macro, over to you. Tell me, why will the Fed back off in your view? I think the first thing that people have to kind of think about when they think about interest rates is kind of maybe get rid of this idea that the Fed is some magical organization that has the power um, on the liquidity side to kind of be able to set interest rates wherever they want them. If you scan Twitter, sometimes they're just sentiment. People are like, pal, should just raise interest rates, you know, five, six percent and just just really get this ball moving. Um, The issue is the Fed doesn't really have the ability to do that. And this goes back to the great economist Milton Friedman, 
um, who said, um, after the U.S. experience during the Great Depression and after inflation, the rising interest rates in the 1970s and disinflation and falling interest rates in the 1980s, I thought the fallacy of identifying uh, tight money with high interest rates and easy money with low interest rates was dead. Apparently, old fallacies never die hard. And so I'm sure for anybody who's just now for the first time hearing this quote is like, did this man just say that high interest rates um, are identified with periods of, of loose monetary policy? And, and that is exactly what Milton Friedman was saying. Hmm. And so he was kind of vague in the way that he went about um, kind of explaining this, but um, something that was based on Maroon Macro's research, and then I've kind of updated, was looking at the year-over-year volume of credit issuance. And so what I found, based on his research, is that every time you had sustained higher interest rates, you had an, um, an uptick as a pretext in the year-over-year volume of credit issuance, whether you're looking at total credit, loans, or debt securities. Um, and we haven't really seen banks um, increase year-over-year volume of, of credit issuance. They have not really been extending credit, and it's kind of been this way more or less since the GFC. Um, and so this idea that people have where they think the Fed is going to be able to sustain higher interest rates, I think is, is kind of a false premise because in my research and what I'm believing is the, uh, the banks are going to push back so hard on this and the banks don't really have any incentive to, to extend credit. That idea of sustained interest rates is not going to be able to, to actually come to fruition. Mm. Okay. So there's a lot for you to unpack. So let's, uh, you know, this, this idea of credit issuance and the premise is that when interest rates are low, there is more demand for credit and you are not disputing that part, right? Yes. Yes. I'm not okay. disputing that part. Exactly. When interest rates are low, there's more demand for credit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the demand side. The, yeah. the other part of that uh, equation is the supply side, which is right. the banks, institutions, investors who have to decide who to lend to at these lower interest rates. Right. And that's usually what's missed when people discuss low interest rates. Right. And now, is this just a, a matter of banks don't want to lend at low interest rates because there's less in it for them? There's less of a, of a spread of a profit margin, I guess. Uh, is, is it as simple as that or, or what else goes into that? So for me, I, I think that it's a lot of things. I, I think there are so many other things that banks can do now that are relatively risk-free. Why would they want to go out and lend? Huh. One of these big things, and I, I didn't actually talk about this uh, on my Substack, but one being uh, kind of what's been happening at the reverse repo window. So you know, there's, there's been, you know, quote, six trillion or so that has, has been extended uh, on the fiscal side, but about two trillion of that has now been kind of tied up in the reverse repo window. So none of that is actually being hmm. lent out in the economy. It's just kind of tied up in the banking sector. The other issue was after the great financial crisis, we used to have a, a, a floor system for the interest paid on excess reserves. So that's any money that's parked at the Fed. The issue was after the GFC, they changed this to to kind of a corridor system. So they raised the like the rate paid on interest uh, on excess reserves. And so banks have not really had um, any reason to lend because right now I I believe that uh, rate when I looked at about two weeks ago is about 90 basis points. So why would you go and and lend? 
or even go and buy a, a one month treasury when you can just earn 90 basis points uh, paid on interest on excess reserves. And they actually have an arbitrage opportunity there where they can actually go and arbitrage between the LIBOR or now the SOFOR rate and earn another 150 basis points. So, you know, you're talking somewhere in the ballpark of, of 250, 240 basis points, relatively risk-free. Yeah. And I, I think that this is the, the larger incentive that banks have had not to really go out and extend credit. Okay, so this is going, something going back, and I remember hearing about this after the financial crisis about how all these banks were unwilling to loan to extend loans, but I, I was not aware that this was still going on. Now, what about non-bank lenders? Because you have other sectors, other things that have propped up over the last couple of years um, that that are that are making loans. I mean, some of them are, are on the corporate side are, are hedge funds, right? So, what what about that to pick up to? Um, you know, make up for the supply, the the lack of supply. Has that been something that has all at all materialized, or that is part of this equation, or not? It has materialized, but it's not to the same. Um, like like loans, if if you look at small, like even like um, you know B lenders, etc., is not the size of the the loan growth that goes on on the actual um, commercial banking side. Okay. Um, and and I mean, you have seen that throughout kind of the pandemic because you know some people were working part-time or they had to take you know lower paying jobs because they got laid off and so you did see like kind of this turn to i don't want to say like loan sharks but you know like these yeah. loan sharks more or less where people are paying these atrocious interest rates but again that's that's a much smaller um of overall sorry proportion of, of loans that are actually um issued um most of this is um driven by by commercial banks so okay. they're they're the real important player in the game. Okay. Now, what, what I'm still struggling with here is how this translates to the Fed's inability to raise rates. So the Fed has now, you know, over the, just this year, raised rates a whole bunch, obviously, and normally that would cut uh, credit, at least the demand and credit. So, but how is your um, how how is this working out in in, in your view? Yeah, so the, the thing that I think is most important when you kind of uh, look at this is first, what I've been looking at is, is how banks have kind of structured their portfolios. And so basically what they're doing is they're borrowing short and lending long. You have a yield curve inversion. This kills profitability for banks. So banks, again, who actually are, are more active in, in the bond market because they're actually the ones buying from the, the primary brokers have a lot more ability to kind of fiddle around in the bond market, that that belly of the curve, um, to actually be able to kind of set interest rates um, more or less where they want them. And you saw this, um, I think this was back in 2018, the banks, uh, they didn't pass their, their audit. And actually, the funny thing about this is the audit that they actually have to go through is actually they're given everything that they actually have to do to pass the audit. They still failed. Um, the Federal Reserve um, tried to, to raise rates on them. And what actually happened was the banks pushed back um, and then the Fed ended up dropping the, uh, that was the uh, uh, interest on, ex or not the interest on excess reserve. They dropped the, um, uh, was it right. the, uh, the reverse repo window? Yeah. Okay. And so anyways, they, they dropped one of these rates because the banks pushed back on them so hard. Um, 
And so within this, you always see the ability of banks to actually be able to set interest rates, obviously, because one, they're more active in the bond market. So at that belly of the curve, they have more ability to set. And they are also from from the actual credit point um, and the profitability standpoint, if the Fed continues on this and the, the yield curve inversion gets worse, banks are going to bleed so hard. These are going to be the people coming to the Fed and saying either you're going to have to bail us out again because we're having compression or mm. solvency issues. Not all banks, right? But I mean, there are banks, um, I, I don't want to mention exact names within the US that even after 08 really not, really didn't get back to being well capitalized. Mm. They would just suffer so bad. You could end up into a position where you could, I don't want to say see, see another GFC, but where you do start to see the possibility mm. of bank failures. Interesting. Well, that's a, that's another thing there is because I always thought that the banks were well capitalized after the GFC, that the balance sheets were in a lot better shape, certainly than they were then. Um, I mean, you have removed the whole prop trading desks. So there is that part that's out of the equation. Of course, that's not the balance sheet, but still, um, that's really interesting. So where do you think that the Fed will stop here um, with their with their hiking cycle? Yeah. So one thing that I've looked at is, is Eurodollar futures. Um, and what you've seen on the Eurodollar futures, if you look at Eurodollar futures, which I know, again, are based on the three-month LIBOR, but if you look at those against the implied hike, the spread, the spread says that the Fed will do another 99 basis points. And so you're, and that's up until the end of 2020. So Eurodollar futures are pricing in another yeah 100 basis points whether we get a 75 or Powell comes out and surprises the market again and does a whole mm. hundred um but that's kind of where my um idea has been that they will pivot um in september so they'll do one mm. more um in july um they'll have the break in august and then they'll come back um and they will they will actually end up backing off the euro dollar market and and those things actually play a very significant role also in, in Fed policy and the implications that it has. Yeah, talk us through that for those that might not be aware of the euro dollar market, how that all works. Yeah, so just think about um, when if, like, let's say that the Bank of the United States, just so that we're not using actual mm. specific banks here, goes to the um, Bank of of, uh, of Germany, um, not central banks here, just, just commercial sure. banks, mm -hmm. and parks money with the Bank of Germany, um, people would be like, okay, um, that money can't really do anything. But because of the euro dollar market, those liabilities that sit on the Bank of Germany's um, balance sheet, they actually have the ability and to go and create loans against those liabilities. So they can basically almost um, engage in the fractional reserve banking system with US dollars and actually extend loans on the back of those US dollars. And so um, this is kind of a very important um, concept um, because it shows that there's this whole other market and, and nobody's actually been able to quantify this market because it's mm. completely outside of the, the Federal Reserve's control. Um, but um, this is kind of what the euro dollar market is. So it's it's kind of this ability to, to have either dollar liquidity to create liabilities um, or just dollar liquidity in general, because uh, even with euro dollar markets, if even if you're just like a manufacturer in Germany, and I'm a you know um, a manufacturer in the United States, I need to buy things from you, and the transactions done done in dollars. Those dollars sit on your balance sheet. You as a manufacturer can't do anything with those, but once you take those to your bank, they can. Um, mm. And this is kind of the euro dollar system. 
Okay. So it's a way for banks in Europe to access U.S. dollars. Is that what it is? Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. kind of create um, U.S. dollar uh, liabilities loans, against yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loans Got against it. them. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. So and now what, what has this predicted in the past? Uh, have you studied that? Yeah. So actually, every time the euro dollar curve um, uh, it becomes inverted, um, you, you actually end up seeing, um, usually as a pretext between three to six months after that, um, mm. the Federal Reserve change in course, because what that inversion kind of shows is obviously, one, the euro dollar market doesn't believe the Fed's going to continue. And two, somebody somewhere, um, it's probably a lot of people, but they're hedging a, a deflationary or mm-hmm. a um, or a, a possible Fed pivot somewhere down mm-hmm. the line. So it's kind of showing also people hedging this or kind of taking the contrarian view um, yeah. to to continued Fed rate hikes. Very interesting. And so you've seen this in the past that it that it uh, it fronts the or it, yeah it's about a, a six month or so predictor of the Fed funds rate, and we have the Fed funds now sitting at one point seven five. And so you're saying that they're doing if they're going to do another 99, so bring it to three. I'm sorry, to 275, yeah, and that will be it, you think? And so September, we'll then see a cut or just stand pat or maybe raise 25 or. Yeah, for me, I, I think they're going to have to cut. Um, hmm. And this is um, again um, kind of something that I, I was looking at um, that I don't think people are again factoring into a lot of this analysis of what the Fed does. And that is the implications of what happens abroad. Um, and right. actually, my first Substack I ever wrote was, is Europe doomed? Will the ECB pivot? And then like three days later, Lagarde came out and was like, ah, I'm not really sure if we can do this because like the pigs are blowing up, right? I mean, you mm. had um, the, the 10-year Italian bond um, go like, I don't want to say parabolic, but almost like meme stock, you know? And, and so what I, I have actually been looking at is something that's called the cross-currency basis swap. Um, these are a little technical and, um, you know, again, like retail people, for example, uh, like you have to have an ISDA to trade these, but they're, they're actually a very important um, indicator of dollar shortage. Um, and so when there's a perceived dollar shortage, that basis becomes more negative. And the basis across different tenors, whether you're talking one, two, three, or five-year tenors, are all now more negative than they were during the beginning of the pandemic. And we remember what happened with swap lines. So there's actually a massive shortage of dollars um, throughout the the global economy. Um, And this is what I believe is actually going to have to make the Fed pivot. Um, Also, because if they do not, um, because the United States does kind of control global monetary policy, you could start to see contagion risk on a liquidity basis within Europe. Um, I mean, credit default swaps for banks are blowing out in Europe. And I'm, I'm not even talking mm. small banks. I mean, you've seen that with Credit Suisse and Deutsche. Mm. Um, you have corporate credit default swaps blowing out. Um, you have um, Euro high yield blowing out. Um, you have like deterioration and subordinated uh, tier two debt. So there's there's all of this, this you know, which, which obviously... Um, also hurts bank uh, bank quality. So there's all of these kind of factors that have started to to kind of pull through, because the Europeans don't actually have enough dollars to do, you know, um, mm. let's say like daily transactions like they would prior. And I, yeah. I think that this is really the crux of the issue. How about the sovereign CDS, the sovereign credit default swaps? Is that are there are those uh, how are those looking? Um, the sovereigns, it, it's 
I mean, definitely for the PICS countries, they're yeah. deteriorating. Even for Canada, Canada's uh, okay. Canada's credit default swaps are actually uh, pretty bad. On This is on the five years. Last time I looked at them, I mean, Canada was trading like, I think, between Portugal and Spain. Wow. Um, and, and so, yeah, you, you've you kind of had deterioration all, all across the board. Um, I know that France's are pretty high, but nothing like unusual. But yeah, usually it's more just the pigs like Portugal, Spain, Italy, uh, Ireland, Greece. Greece. All of those are 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 pretty uh, pretty bad. Um, wow. okay. Everyone else in Europe is kind of just. I, I don't think anybody's really worried about Germany. France is like I right. said, are a little bit elevated, and those are kind of probably the ones that I'd be most worried about. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, I was not aware of that I have not not been monitoring that situation at all lately. But okay, here's how another another factor here that you haven't mentioned yet, which is inflation. And obviously the Fed, yeah, they, they need to supply liquidity to the banking system, but they also have very real inflation. And you know the CPI at whatever 40-year highs, um, and then the PCE also at, at uh, you know, I think multi-decade highs. So, and it's not, it's not um, it hasn't peaked either because the most recent reading that we saw for the CPI actually increase a bit. I might have fallen a bit for the core CPI, but and that's what has obviously got the Fed hiking rates here in the first place. Now, what do you make of all that? And um, is that not something that is going to keep the Fed in a bind where they have to keep raising rates? Yeah, so this is actually something that I've studied um, very um, in depth. And I think that we actually haven't seen CPI start to come down. I think there's a little bit of a lag. But one thing that I have been looking at was between April of last year and April of this year, you had about 1.6 or 1.7 trillion in consumer spending. This came on the back of about a 1.5 trillion or 1.6 trillion, I don't have the data in front of me, drawdown in consumer savings and a um, about a $120 billion increase in consumer credit card debt. So, so there you can see everything kind of adds up. The, the $1.6 trillion or $1.7 trillion we, came, we got uh, for consumer spending came on the back of drawdowns and savings plus the additional uh, increase in credit card debt. So this is showing that like, you know, consumers are not really in a good place to be able to continue consumption and the way that they're doing that is on the back of either drawing down savings or going to the credit card. And so how this kind of factors into inflation is that if you started to look at what happened in the beginning of the pandemic, it became very much a supply issue. But now we're starting to see demand cool as the supply chains kind of get worked out. And we're also kind of seeing retail inventories. If you've looked at wholesale or retail, uh, inventory numbers are, are extremely elevated on a month over month basis. I think retail's at all time highs and wholesale might be the second highest number uh, on, on record, or it might be the inverse of that. But so, so kind of what you're starting to see now is these rising um, like, you know, inventories. And so, mm. For me, that's obviously one deflationary, um, and two, you're kind of having the already the consumer start to uh, start to more or less uh, wane, and so I think that this is going to start to pass through to corporations saying, okay, consumers are no longer able to to afford higher prices. Um, what do we do? Because really, the ability to continue to pass those costs on is going to start to decline, um, and then I'm I'm. Uh, projecting that 
you know, once you start to look at margins, margins are going to start to get compressed, not even from a stock market standpoint, but just from a regular corporate standpoint. Um, and therefore, you know, one of the largest inputs in, in hiring is future projections of profitability growth. And so if margins are getting compressed, um, I think that we are going to actually see a um, like kind of a stoppage of hiring, which we're already starting to see in a lot of these tech companies. Mm. And then the whole unemployment factor is going to start to to actually pull through. Mm. Um, I think we're already starting to to have the wheels turning on that. Mm. This actually just hasn't been pulled through into the CPI and the PPI and even the unemployment data. Um, and even with employment data, usually what I look at is the the APR uh, or the ADP. Sorry. The ADP um, payroll data. Um, and oh, really? You, you look at that ahead of the other one, the Bureau of Labor Statistics one? Yeah, I look at the ADP ah. because they they actually have the, I, I would say, the most in-depth, um, like kind of up-to-date research. Um, because if, if you go to almost any office in the United States, you log into an ADP system. And so right. what you saw is companies with one to 49, uh, 1 to 49 employees, um, so small businesses, lost in, uh, in May, 123,000 jobs. In April, they lost 91,000 jobs. The new number hasn't come out for this month, but you're already starting to see deterioration kind of in the backbone of the economy. Mm. These, these small businesses that have to cut costs and usually employment costs being the highest. And mm -hmm. so I think that this is also kind of a pretext to what's going to end up happening at the corporate level. Um, mm. And then I do think inflation is going to come down. It's probably, I'm not saying it's going to get back to the 2%, but I think that we're going to see a pretty drastic rate of change. Um, maybe we see it at three or four. Um, How soon? I'm uh, assuming by the beginning of next year. So you know, we're, we're looking at like maybe a six month period because, you know, everybody knows that kind of, uh, or people might not know this, but like the CPI lags about 12 months. Um, right. so, so we might already actually be in kind of this deflationary environment, hmm. but because the CPI is a lagging indicator, that data hasn't really all been pulled through yet. Um, right, right. And so this is kind of why I, I'm thinking maybe give it six months and we'll start to see the CPI drop. So yeah, can the Fed will that really allow the Fed enough to, to declare victory over inflation? I mean, if we're looking at September and the CPI is still printing five, six, seven percent, whatever it is, what can the Fed say? This is this is a, a lagging indicator and, and it's gonna come down, trust me. Yeah, and, and this is where I might be wrong, but you know, when when I look at it, I, I you know, this bout of inflation isn't monetary. You know, when the when the federal government sent out those STEMI checks, they that was a complete fiscal injection. So this mm -hmm. is nothing that the Fed really did. And and so like, you know, this this idea that they can really do something about what we had with like, you know, inelastic uh, you know, supply, uh, supply curves. Mm -hmm they don't really have any ability to be able to control that. Sure, they can try to hit consumption uh, and destroy demand. Um, but like even right now, I mean, yes, people have drawn down and, you know, that 1.6 trillion, like I said, uh, came from credit card, uh, increase in credit card spending and drawing down savings. But the thing is, it, it's like, if, if you actually look at, you know, um, retail sales the, divided by personal consumption expenditures, still... 48% of, of consumer consumption was spent on goods and the historic average is 23. So we're still well, well elevated above the historic average of, of what consumers spend on goods. And so like, even now you're just not seeing consumers really care what the fed 
is is trying to do to destroy demand. You're you're seeing it in the housing market, but on the actual like consumer level, where will it be enough to hit that C component of GDP um, being consumption and get us a negative consumption number? I'm not sure if they'll be able mm. to 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 get us there. And mm. again, because this bout of of inflation isn't monetary, raising rates, it, I don't think is really going to do much besides put more pain um, on banks and put more pain on on just the average American consumer who, you know, now with credit cards, for example, has to pay a higher interest rate on the yeah. credit card bill. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's really quite a conundrum we've got the Fed in then, um, if all you're saying holds true. Um, yeah, right. Because they've been caught asleep at the wheel before. I mean, their whole mantra of the being transitory last year, which who knows, may have even been true, but it didn't Certainly didn't look good um, when you had an 8% prints after that or 9% prints or 10%, whatever it was. Um, cool. All right, to your point, Macro, uh, I want to take a quick break and come back and ask you some personal questions to the extent that we we can, of course, um, as you, this is a, you're under a pseudonym, so we don't want to violate that in any way. But there is some personal information that just about your background and professional, I should say, more than personal, that you can provide um, our listeners. But before we do that, I want to take a quick break. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break and we'll be right back. In fact, we already are. Everybody else, hang out for a minute. To become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Some of them say things like, end the Fed, don't tax the rich. I heart the Fed, Dr. Parikh Patel, not back office. Okay, that one is actually kind of funny. Market cap cap, that's also pretty funny. And some other ones. You may know their Twitter, at Stock Market Hats, but check it out, stockmarkethats.com, and enter contrarian at checkout to take advantage of a 10% discount. Welcome back, everybody, here with Deerpoint Macro. Uh, has a Substack. Uh, is it DeerpointMacro.substack.com? Uh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and you have. Uh, we, we've talked a, quick, a little bit about, or a lot actually, about interest rates and inflation. This is the segment of the show where we ask our guest about their background, how they came to this station in their career. So obviously, uh, you, you can't divulge your employer or your name, nor are we going to ask. But uh, I'm curious, just in general terms, what your background has been like to get you to this point? Yeah, so um, uh, on the schooling side, 
my, my background is in economics. So um, I have my, uh, just like my BA in, in economics, not that I don't have like a grad or, or PhD. After that, uh, I went to work uh, for, I, I am an American, but at this time I was in Canada. I, I went to work for a bank in Canada. I worked on the, the capital market side, um, mostly dealing with, um, with like um, equity research with regards to mutual funds um, and kind of, um, you know, helping find companies that we were going to possibly put into, you know, future mutual funds that we ended up uh, issuing. Then after that, I kind of went to work on the rates desk and FX desk. And now I came back to Canada again to work on the the mutual fund side. So um, I'm back in kind of where I got started. So that was kind of my um, my my whole background. Nice. And so let's talk about this now, this, this whole idea. First of all, I, I thought it was interesting what you said about the ADP payrolls, because on my daily show, I basically am telling listeners to ignore it because markets don't really pay all that much attention to that. You're, you're 100% right. The bond market doesn't care about the ADP data. Um, but I, I think the ADP data is is kind of the the more important data that, mm. that to look at. But yeah, bond traders, when they're trading, um, they just care for that employment number and then they, they go from there. Yeah. Uh, but for actual economic detective work, um, I, mm-hmm. I would say AD, ADP data is pretty important. Okay, that is something new I will have to pass on to my listeners when that is released. Well, luckily, it's every month, not every week, like some of these other metrics. Speaking of which, what other kinds of things do you look at here? You talk, touched on the euro dollars um, and some other stuff. What other types of stuff do you have up? What kind of screens are you monitoring? And yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, so so I, I, I monitor um, kind of a lot of things, but it's mostly derivative products. So like I'll, I'll monitor swap spreads, um, which is um, just a fixed leg um, vanilla interest rate swap against a uh, treasury of a similar tenor. Um, so I monitor uh, swap spreads. I monitor obviously cross-currency basis swaps. Um, I monitor the euro dollars, uh, the euro dollar futures curve, and those are kind of the uh, mostly the things that I look at. There are some things like um, you can look at the the swap on the on the treasury curve, and that can kind of tell you um, what what is being projected because that area of the like the swap on the treasury curve isn't really controlled by the Fed. So it's actually like if you look at the swap, there's there's a pretty big uh, not a large discrepancy, but there is a discrepancy between that and the two stints curve. And so I, I look at those two and see whether or not it's widening and that also has implications. And so, yeah, it's, it's mostly derivatives and, and rates things that I, I I monitor mostly. Yeah. So this is something for professionals, not for, for retailers, but maybe just to quickly put this into context. So a swap is when a, an investor wants to swap out an interest, the interest rate that they're getting on a certain instrument for another one, right? So in this case, the treasury there, the, so you're monitoring basically the demand uh, for swaps, is that right? For demand for new interest rates uh, on on these things, is that what it is? Yeah, so so that's what I've been monitoring because uh-huh. that's also um, a very interesting kind of uh, implication of where, like you would think if the Fed was raising rates, you would actually have that swap spread uh, reinflating. However, it's still uh, still negative. Okay. So that again is kind of this 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 idea that people aren't really like engaging in the swap market. There's other hmm. like more technical reasons that, that could also be happening, but um, that which kind of goes back to 08 and and balance sheets actually never really being repaired. Um, hmm. So so that's kind of yeah, but exactly that's that's um, 
the swap market uh, yeah. and then the euro dollar market or the sorry the the cross currency basis swap market like i said is just a measure of of dollar and very like untechnical terms a very uh, uh, um, a level of dollar shortages um, right. as as perceived um, by a, an additional premium for that sick of me yet become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions other benefits as well visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information all right so as far as all this translating into uh, you know, asset prices. I mean, you would think that all everything that you're saying would be good for bond markets. Indeed, today bonds are taking are seeing massive bids, um, which is kind of weird considering Powell is talking about in- further interest rate hikes. But um, so it would, you would think for that, and then but then also it doesn't sound like you're. I mean, you're not a stocks guy, obviously, but it doesn't sound like the banks are necessarily as safe as people might think. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, that is that is definitely a fair assessment. Um, and I mean, I, I could talk uh, about that at, at a little more length, but like it, it's just, yeah, I, I would be scared um, about banks, regional banks, however, just because they mm. don't participate in capital markets or like syndicated loans. Um, if you actually look at the ratio and, and anybody I, I believe can do that, it, uh, the, uh, the ratio between um, the uh, the banking index like the the large commercial banking index against the regional banking index mm. you'll actually see regional banks have actually outperformed quite a bit and that mm. is because of that less exposure to to capital markets mm-hmm. okay here's a, just to throw something different a little different at you here cryptocurrencies um this is not something that we talk about on this show except that i'm, I'm curious and i'm wondering if this is something that you are, are watching at all the counterparty risk on these and the fact that you're going to have kind of um, f- collateral effects from all of these uh, crypto exchanges and crypto brokers and crypto investors kind of potentially going belly up here as the uh, bottom falls out on, on Bitcoin and other digital assets to the extent that it does. But in your work, how much demand are you seeing for crypto? Well, I guess these are two separate questions, but to what extent do you think that's realistic to be concerned about that? And do you actually see any uh, real use for cryptos in your work? I, I personally don't. Um, I, I have a buddy who works for a bank, like an actual regular bank that did have a, a crypto um, fund, I, I, I guess you could say. And it's been an absolute disaster because yeah. um, according to Basel, the Basel Accord, if you do hold crypto assets for every $1 of crypto, you have to hold $12.50 in collateral. So this is a huge risk weight, right? Yeah. Obviously, as that deteriorates, those risk weights yeah, come up. Yeah. Um, and he's like, our value at risk models, which is kind of a, a way to, how, how would I explain value at risk? And that's just a risk of the risk. Yeah, yeah have, just, yeah. just yeah, the, the kind of the long-term tail risk uh, return. Um, yeah, they, they, they have said that it's been an absolute nightmare on mm. overextension of, of what they were prepared to really be able to capitalize or we're projecting that to capitalize from the losses. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I don't think in the near term, just with the involatility of crypto, um, any bank is going to be rushing out even with client demand to try to fill that. I don't even think there's going to be client demand. Now that, well, you know, that's the other option. The other option. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's been bad for banks who, who have, uh, because you know, they, they, these banks didn't get in when it was like you know 12k yeah, right. a lot of these banks started at right. like 40 or 50 yeah, credit. yeah sure 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 yeah so and as far as the any systemic risk uh, the, from this if there is an implosion 
yeah, I, I just think at that point, they I, I'm not sure what they would do, either shut down the fund or right. um, I'm, because, I mean, this would be such a or the bank would just end up shutting down the desk that's dealing yeah. uh, with with that. That would probably be the two things okay. at the losses. Sell the, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, but it's not like the mortgage desks in the mid 2000s. Oh, so these are oh no, no, not that much exposure. Yeah. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe uh, if you can t- t- talk us through the, the this thing called the Fisher effect which is the premise that inflation rises with Fed funds, um, which would seem to be counter to everything that you've just been talking about. But if we have rising Fed funds, how does that translate into higher inflation? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is in the long run, uh, right? Okay. So like the, for, for people who are assuming that, um, for example, you know, interest rates will stay or should stay higher for, let's say, perpetuity, um, the, the theory um, is that you know, you have the real interest rate, you have the expected uh, rate of inflation, and then you have the nominal uh, rate. And so like over a period of time, um, in the short run, if you raise the nominal rate, you will have an increase in the real rate. Um, However, you know, as time passes along, the real rate of interest will move back to whatever its equilibrium was. Um, and the actual rate of inflation will increase one for one with the rise in nominal interest rates. Um, and I, I do have a graph on my Twitter uh, as well as my Substack um, where you can actually kind of see that like a theoretical version of that model. But then you can also see um, the year over year percentage change in the PCE index um, and the effective federal funds rate. and what you actually see is that the the slope um, is actually consistent with the idea that inflation tends to rise as hmm. the Fed uh, rates increase as well. And I know uh, one of my buddies, he he has his PhD in economics, and he was like, well, you're looking at this on like a very long term. So like, right. why not look at it on the short term? But then I came back and said, well, the Phillips curve works in the short term, yeah. doesn't work in the long term or the long sure. run, right? So, so the, you you kind of have to look at things. And Fisher was specifically talking about the long run, right? Mm-hmm. And how long the long run is in economics, nobody knows. Uh, the short term for the Phillips curve is a decade, right? Yeah. Which I don't think anybody sure. would say is a short term, but in economic terms, yeah, the Fisher effect only works on a decade period. So, yeah. this is kind of what the Fisher effect states. I was going to say, when was the last time the Fed was able to keep interest rates uh, higher for any sustained period? I guess you can make the point it was during the Bernanke Fed, maybe. I mean, they got up to like, what, five or 6% there at some point? Yeah, five or 6% and then, yeah, crashing back Which isn't high historically, but yeah. But Mm. I I do think that maybe the the last thing, and I'm sure anybody who's um, familiar with Lacey Hunt's work... um, that's also a, a kind of a, a good place to 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 read about debt, and he talks a lot actually about Irving Fisher, um, because Irving Fisher kind of says, you know, um, in short terms that you know the creation of debt does represent an extension and broad money supply. The destruction of debt actually equates to contracting the money supply, and so therefore right. debt in and of itself is deflationary by nature because it uh-huh. at some point has to be repaid. And kind of my last point that I'll make is I know that people quote Milton Friedman a lot on inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, and I, I love Milton Friedman. When Milton Friedman wrote this, it was between the 50s um, huh. and the 70s, 
but it, this remained true up until about the 90s. The velocity of money was constant. So yes, an increase in the um, money supply per unit of output did lead to an increase, almost a one-for-one -one increase in CPI. Um, however, now that we know that the velocity of money is no longer constant, um, increases in the money supply um, actually have no effect really on, on the rate of inflation. They've completely hmm. diverged because all of that velocity um, is trapped within the banking sector. So it's not out in the economy being spent. So those those were kind of two other points that I did. Very interesting. Substack either. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, you mentioned it. So in closing, I mentioned the Substack, deerpointmacro.substack.com. You're active on Twitter as well. Is that just Deerpoint Macro? Yeah, just just add Deerpoint Macro, and then obviously also uh, Common Stock for anybody who has those. Oh, you are on Common Stock also, yeah, and that's Deerpoint Macro too. Yes, Deerpoint Macro also. Yeah, cool. I will link to those in the show notes. Wonderful. Well, this is a very interesting, very enlightening conversation with Deerpoint Macro. Please do check out his work, uh, DeerpointMacro.substack.com or at Deerpoint Macro on Twitter, or the same name on common stock. And with that, we thank you all for listening and look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.